He felt your pain, rode into office on a wave of inspiration and hope. New beginnings, a Southern boy who appealed to people of color, the poor, women, those left behind by heartless Reagan-era Republicans. It was a new day in America. But if we're being honest, unfuckers, it's an unlikely era that should have never happened. Not simply because the record didn't match the rhetoric. Not because there were better, more progressive options available to us. But because the Clinton era should have ended unceremoniously when then-Governor Bill Clinton uttered these words to the youth of America in a televised interview on MTV. I saw you on Arsenio. You play excellent saxophone. If you could play in any band, which one would it be? If I could play in any band, which one would it be? I would play with Kenny G so I could learn something. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Manny Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking And, uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. Hey, fuckers, we're Sans 99 today in the studio, so I have the opportunity to actually tell you a bit about our sponsors. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Unfucking Overcaffeinated Members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Brian, Awesome A., Ahsoke, and Asshole. In some ways, this episode covers familiar territory as much of Bill Clinton's legacy was relitigated during both of Hillary Clinton's failed presidential bids. Her husband's well-publicized blow-up at Black Lives Matter protesters, along with the work of folks like Michelle Alexander and others, helped shine a light on the pernicious criminal justice policies of the Clinton administration. Less understood is the negative and enduring impact of Clinton's economic policies, a reflection of how indoctrinated into the cult of neoliberalism both parties and the mainstream media have become over the years. Many of the seeds planted by the Reagan administration, which still receives the bulk of the criticism from the left, were sown by the Clinton White House. You know, I've spent a lot of time ripping Milton Friedman to shreds. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Because I'm a true believer that he has been one of the most destructive forces in U.S. politics and, as a result, in the world. To the extent that what happens here affects the entire planet. And there are many who think that Reagan was the poster child for neoliberalism and Friedman's free market ideology. In reality, it's Clinton. Friedman didn't believe in deficits. He believed in school choice, wanted to end welfare, open up trade that allowed workers to work to the lowest common wage denominator. As painful as it is to admit, that's not Ronald Reagan. It's not even George Bush. The most prominent and significant pure free market neoliberal to ever hold office is Bill Clinton. End of story. And it's because of his time in office that I, among others, can so confidently look neoliberalism and free market ideology in the face and say it doesn't work. It's a fucking fantasy. We tried it. It failed. It fucked poor people, especially people of color, for a generation or more beyond what was necessary. We've bookended Bill Clinton's career in the first two episodes documenting his rise as governor of Arkansas and visionary among the New Democrats, and more recently, his work as the head of a global foundation. In this final installment of our series, The Clinton Years, we evaluate the legacy of the Clinton presidency. When taken in totality, it can be overwhelming. What's interesting is that, for the most part, the Clinton years evade authentic scrutiny among the mainstream media and punditry class as well as the political class. To get an honest assessment of this era, one really needs to look at the alternative and progressive press. Here's why. 
Establishment Democrats and so-called liberal media pundits have a vested interest in promoting the 1990s as an era of great prosperity, and we'll talk about that. First, because it twice had to defend Clinton's policies in attempting to formulate a compelling narrative during his wife's presidential bids. And because Bill Clinton and Barack Obama have been carefully packaged and sold as intellectual liberals that cleaned up the mess left behind by reckless Republicans. It's simply part of the brand. Now, on the flip side, the Republican machine and the right-wing hounds from hell have always worked overtime to paint Clinton as an ineffective, draft-dodging, philandering liberal who raised taxes and divided Congress. The real truth about the Clinton years is far uglier and more insidious. Chapter 5. The First Black President When Toni Morrison called Bill Clinton the first black president, it wasn't intended as a compliment. Rather, it was merely an observation, one that she explained by saying, quote, After all, Clinton displays almost every trope of blackness. Single-parent household, born poor, working class, McDonald's and junk food-loving boy from Arkansas. And when virtually all of the African-American Clinton appointees began one by one to disappear, when the president's body, his privacy, his unpoliced sexuality became the focus of the persecution, when he was metaphorically seized and body searched, who could gainsay these black men who knew whereof they spoke? The message was clear. No matter how smart you are, how hard you work, how much coin you earn for us, we will put you in your place or put you out of the place you have somehow, albeit with our permission, achieved. You will be fired from your job, sent away in disgrace, and, who knows, may be sentenced and jailed to boot. In short, unless you do as we say, i.e. assimilate at once, your expletives belong to us, end quote. Wow, powerful stuff. Well, in the 90s, before we could fully appreciate how devastating Clinton-era policies would be for poor people in America, and especially poor black people, Clinton often appeared vulnerable to the vicious attacks of an obstreperous Republican-led Congress. Figures like Newt Gingrich and Dick Armey assaulted Clinton and his character in shocking ways that signified the end of so-called decency and civility in Congress. And then they came after him hard for lying about his affair. Of course, Clinton's behavior was, is, and will always be inexcusable. He's a serial cheater who hung around with the likes of Jeffrey Epstein. He is not a good person. But the way in which Republicans dragged him and his wife through the mud in the 90s and forever after has in some ways insulated them from criticism among many white and black liberals who viewed Republican harassment as even more tawdry than Clinton's behavior. In short, they kind of felt bad for him. But one of the great mysteries of the universe, outside of the ways in which Morrison characterized Clinton's experiences as similar to those in the black community, is how his popularity among black voters has endured. Bill Clinton's race-baiting and abuse of the black community didn't materialize over time. It was always there. The second coming, or, quote, resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 was formalized in a ceremony at the foot of Stone Mountain in Georgia. The site would become a touchstone over the years for white nationalists who traveled far and wide to revel in its historic importance to their doctrine of evil. During Clinton's first presidential campaign, his team organized a press conference at a correctional facility located at the base of Stone Hill. It was a small facility that only housed a few hundred inmates who were mostly young black men. The event was right before Super Tuesday in 92, and the location, given its relatively small size in the corrections world, was a curious choice, to put it generously. As Nathan J. Robinson writes in Super Predator, quote, The photo shows a buoyant Clinton standing in front of black kids stored in a pen at the base of an infamous Confederate monument and pilgrimage site, only a year after its Klan picnics had finally stopped. For a clutch of white politicians to pose in front of black inmates would be mildly nauseating in the most innocuous of locales. That Clinton did it with a pair of open bigots at the entrance to the Confederate Rushmore 
should violently churn the stomach, end quote. Bill Clinton was a Southerner. He understood the optics. If a photograph could whistle, dogs would have been barking all over the South. Now, once in office, Clinton pursued an agenda that would further stigmatize welfare recipients, criminalize a generation of young black men, and demonize the poor. Of primary importance to Clinton was to reform welfare. It was a promise that he had made in his earliest days of campaigning, where he and some advisors believed that welfare could indeed be reformed and replaced by incentives to work. Most of the new Democrats also believed that any reforms would need to be backstopped with healthcare, childcare, job training, and other support that allowed people to transition from welfare roles to jobs. But as Clinton formulated his agenda, the Republicans were hard at work trying to tear it down and attack Clinton the moment he took office. The result was a midterm bloodbath. Aligning behind Newt Gingrich and his contract with America, the Republicans picked up eight seats in the Senate and more than 50 seats in the House. It was a resounding victory for the Republican Party as Newt Gingrich took the gavel for the first time in four decades. As much as the Democrats were prepared for a fight, no one expected such a shellacking. I did not see that coming! To counter the Gingrich revolution, Clinton decided to lean into it instead of fight it. To out-asshole the assholes in what his advisor Dick Morris would call triangulation. Reduce the deficit? Ah, How about a fucking surplus? Reduce social services? How about throwing people off welfare altogether? This kicked off a literal race to the bottom to see who could fuck poor people more. Republicans kept throwing welfare reform bills at Clinton, and he would veto them and propose even more awful measures. The final bill eviscerated welfare in this nation. Remember, this is a Bill Clinton story. The man who feels your pain. Hero of the black community, even Clinton's advisors, Shalala, Rubin, Reich, the entire black congressional caucus, National Organization of Women, the Rainbow Coalition, DLC members who had been with him in lockstep throughout his political journey, everyone around him reminded him that he had a double-digit lead over Bob Dole, a horrific candidate. Even Clinton knew that this legislation was bad, and yet, in a low-energy press conference, Bill Clinton squinted and winced, bit his lip, felt our pain, and signed the bill into law. And even though the bill has serious flaws that are unrelated to welfare reform, I believe we have a duty to seize the opportunity it gives us to end welfare as we know it. Welfare became temporary. Two years and out was the mantra. In total, the bill imposed a five-year lifetime cap on benefits. It created work requirements. It gave the power to the states to distribute benefits and then cut the funding for them. In a Clinton-esque way of promoting the effectiveness of this awful bill, Bill and Hillary Clinton would point to the reduction in absolute number of recipients on the welfare rolls as proof that the system was working. It was really twisted and evil logic. Moving off the rolls into a job? Well, that was one thing. Being thrown off was another thing entirely. Single mothers did enter the workforce at historic rates, which they also promoted as a good thing. But they did so because they couldn't exist on the benefits alone, so they had no choice. And without childcare guarantees, their kids were left to their own devices. Another cruel consequence. And because work requirements were part of the package, Black Americans in historically discriminatory work states often suffered the worst. As Robinson notes in Super Predator, quote, those who were successfully moved to employment saw their earnings increase. But for others, conditions not only stagnated, but worsened. In particular, those at the bottom of the bottom suffered. In the years since welfare reform, the percentage of families in extreme poverty increased by 50 percent, end quote. The administration continued to try and cover its bases by promoting entrepreneurship, credit, and microfinance as economic salvation for the poor. 
Despite the failure of Shore Bank and Grameen to meaningfully scale the credit programs, Clinton would continually double down on similar initiatives like expanding the women's self-empowerment projects that Clinton also brought from Chicago to Arkansas and to the White House. A signature element of the WSEPs was once again microfinancing, where the federal government would match personal savings accounts of female entrepreneurs in pilot programs throughout the country. Here's Geismer. Quote, The 2,350 participants were primarily women of color with children who received some sort of public assistance. In addition to making monthly deposits, the program required them to attend monthly economic literacy courses. The courses focused on skills like balancing a checkbook, making a budget, and how making small changes in habits such as taking a sack lunch to work could add up to big differences, end quote. The Clinton team rolled out the usual playbook of finding a singular standout and parading her around the country in press conferences to encourage support for the program. When all was said and done, quote, 48% of the participants saved less than $100, end quote. Nearly every single Democrat in office, and even Clinton's administration, was horrified by the welfare reform bill. Everyone, it seemed, but Clinton himself. Mm, he seems like a nice guy. UNFTR is also sponsored by over-caffeinated members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G. and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second. Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Chapter 6. Housing, the American Nightmare Bill Clinton would continue to strangle the necks of the working poor, moving bill after bill through Congress designed to force the country deeper into neoliberal economic thinking. Welfare reform was just one of the bricks that needed to be taken out of the wall. Another was housing. Housing for the poor had long been a disgrace in the United States. No one seemed to have a solution that worked across the board. Public housing suffered from underinvestment and corruption, and both parties were incapable of addressing the issue. The Milton Friedman wing of economists didn't believe in it at all, but thought that if anything, a voucher system would be superior to purely subsidized housing. Very similar to the neoliberal belief system surrounding school choice. Clinton once again went a step fucking further and would again tie market incentives to a benefit program. The Quality Housing and Work Responsibility Act, passed in 1998, made employment a precondition for housing, which was obviously problematic for the elderly, chronically underemployed and uneducated, disabled and infirmed population. It seemed Clinton wouldn't be happy until every welfare recipient in the country was cast out of the system entirely. And to make matters worse, he went yet another step further and tied public housing to his anti-crime policies as well by introducing something called the one-strike rule. The so-called one-strike rule, where residents could be evicted for the accusation of crime, was already in existence under Reagan, but Clinton, again, went further to include guests of residents as well countless stories of elderly residents being evicted because their children or grandchildren were accused of criminality began cropping up across the country as a result. Here's Michelle Alexander describing her indignation at the black community's ongoing support for the Clintons. You know, as someone who had spent more than a decade um, working on issues related to mass incarceration, and it also spent years representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality, and who had worked with people who were victimized, directly victimized by the policies of the Clinton era. People who were evicted from their homes as a result of Clinton's one strike and you're out policy. Um, people who could not return home to their families because of the Clinton administration's rule, you know, barring people with criminal records from um, public housing, making it possible for people returning home from prison to have nowhere to go. Um, the Clinton administration's support for um, the ban on even food, food stamps, for people who are convicted of drug felonies. 
and you know it was difficult for me to watch um, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton going into black churches and being welcomed and all of the fanfare surrounding them in the black community knowing that black incarceration rates soared during his administration, that he embraced the war on drugs and escalated it beyond what his Republican predecessors had even dreamed possible. Poverty-stricken people in cities across America were thrown from the frying pan into the fire with the elimination of crucial benefits and often unrealistic work requirements. But the Clinton administration had yet another market-based response to loosen lending standards, lowering rates, and encouraging homeownership. And it worked for a while, until it didn't. We all know what happened next when Wall Street and the private markets got involved. Well, my, my firm offers uh, ninja loans. No income, no, no job. You know, I just leave the income section blank if I want. Corporate doesn't care. These people just want homes, you know, and they, they go with the flow. Good for you. Now, the lead up to this was not entirely Clinton's fault. The loosening of credit standards started the ball rolling, but much of the initial deal flow came through the auspices of the Community Reinvestment Act, the CRA, which plowed billions of dollars of home and small business loans to low-income borrowers. It was an admirable plan, presuming interest rates stayed low and there was a modicum of underwriting standards. But another plan was afoot on Wall Street, which was developing a serious taste for increased risk. Reagan-era tax cuts, Clinton-era deregulation, NAFTA, the 90s was a banner decade for corporate America, and it was about to triple down on risk. Here's a quick overview of a series of bad cascading decisions that would ultimately unleash the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Sanford Weil, one of the titans of the banking industry, was a close ally of the Clinton administration. Weil and others were pushing for reforms in the banking industry to allow for greater consolidation and lending flexibility. So the Clinton administration used the CRA as a carrot to incentivize bankers to cooperatively lend money to low-credit lenders for houses and small businesses. The more loans they gave out, the greater the consideration they were given when presenting big-time mergers. The scheme worked, unleashing what Geismar calls, quote, a historic wave of consolidation. Then along came Phil Graham, one of the worst people in the world. In future episodes, we're going to talk more about this asshole. For now, suffice to say, he was behind the scheme to break down the wall between commercial and investment banking activities by repealing a Depression-era law known as Glass-Steagall. Essentially, this allowed investment banks to tap into consumer and business deposits and leverage them into the markets. Now, at the time, it was sold by Clinton as a necessary step to modernize the financial system to compete in the next century. Here's what we have to project past the Clinton years. Remember the two things we mentioned that are critical in terms of low credit applicants, low interest rates and rigorous underwriting standards. Low interest rates stayed around for a while, but almost immediately, underwriting standards were loosened. And thanks to an invention by a banker named Lou Ranieri, known as mortgage-backed securities, in the 2000s, home mortgages became the hottest investment in banking. But at least interest rates were still low enough that people could afford their mortgages for a while. For the next part, let's hand it over to Matt Taibbi from his incredible book, Griftopia. Quote, in June 2004, just a few months after he encouraged Americans to shun fixed-rate mortgages for adjustable-rate mortgages, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan raised rates for what would be the first of 17 consecutive times. End quote. That's right. This motherfucker, who helped design the deregulation era under Clinton and who stayed on during the beginning of the Bush years, told the American people to take out adjustable loans because rates would stay low. Then he raised them 17 fucking times, leading to the largest housing bubble and crisis in the nation's history. Chapter 7. Clinton's Criminal Injustice System Criminalizing poverty is one of the biggest and worst legacies of the Clinton era. 
It began early in his administration before the midterm elections with the passage of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, a pet initiative of Joe Biden since the 1970s. It was a wholesale and comprehensive suite of reforms that elevated the worst parts of Nixon and Reagan's war on drugs and contained shockingly punitive measures for black and brown people in America who were victims of systemic oppression. As Robinson writes, quote, The crime bill overflowed with new provisions and programs. It allocated nearly $10 billion for the construction of new prisons, expanded the number of death penalty-eligible federal crimes from 2 to 58 eliminated a statute that prohibited the execution of mentally incapacitated defendants, created special deportation courts for non-citizens accused of engaging in terrorist activity, added new mechanisms for tracking sex offenders after they had served their sentences, introduced three-strikes law that gave mandatory life sentences for third offenses, gave $10.8 billion to local police departments to hire 100,000 new officers, introduced truth in sentencing requirements, and allow children as young as 13 to be tried as adults, end quote. This sweeping reform set in motion a wave of activity that stressed the justice system. And it not only took aim at low-level offenders and impoverished citizens trapped in a cycle of poverty, it made life even more impossible for the incarcerated during and after their sentences. College funding for inmates was stripped away as Pell Grants were eliminated for prisoners. Again, Robinson. Quote, In 1994, 71% of prisons had offered associate's degree programs, while by 1998, only 37% did. Likewise, with bachelor's programs, which dropped from 48% of prisons in 1994 to 20% in 1998. Altogether, over 350 prison college programs disappeared in a few years. Among the 1994 crime bill's many heartless initiatives, the prisoner Pell Grant elimination is perhaps comparatively among the less significant, but it stands out for its sheer, pointless, mean-spiritedness, end quote. Judges were stripped of their ability to fix unsound convictions. Evidence was clear that mistakes, especially in cases involving death row inmates, were common. In a Columbia Law School study examining death penalty cases from 1973 to 1995, it was found that courts found reversible errors in 7 out of 10 cases. But the new law prevented judges from re-examining court decisions of such magnitude, theoretically condemning thousands of inmates to die based on faulty convictions. As Robinson writes, quote, Until this time, 73% of death penalty cases reviewed found that the death penalty was unwarranted and 9% of the defendants were proven innocent, end quote. Clinton also signed the Prison Litigation Reform Act, making it harder for inmates to file lawsuits. Under the new act, prisoners had to demonstrate physical abuse or violence, so extraordinary isolation, rape, strip searches, being forced to stand nude for hours. None of these technically qualified. Clinton's interventions weren't confined to the prison industrial complex. They even extended into housing. One especially cruel executive policy meted out by HUD was to hold residents and even their guests accountable for so-called criminal acts, not necessarily convictions. So if a resident was arrested or charged with a crime, or let's say an elderly resident's grandchild was charged, the resident could be evicted without an arrest or a conviction. Even if they were found innocent, it would be up to HUD officials to decide, and in many cases, and because of the one-strike rule, people were just thrown into the street. Here's Michelle Alexander from the new Jim Crow to explain in more detail. Quote, In 1996, President Clinton, in an effort to bolster his tough-on-crime credentials, declared that public housing agencies should exercise no discretion when a tenant or guest engages in criminal activity, particularly if it is drug-related. In his 1996 State of the Union address, he proposed one-strike-and-you're-out legislation, which strengthened eviction rules and strongly urged that drug offenders be automatically excluded from public housing based on their criminal records. He later declared, if you break the law, you no longer have a home in public housing. One strike and you're out. That should be law everywhere in America, end quote. As if one strike wasn't enough, Clinton also fought for the three strikes in your outlaw as early as 1994. 
It was so well received by Republicans that it easily cleared passage in the crime bill, resulting in the explosion of mass incarceration in the nation. So much so, the country could barely keep up with the construction of new prisons despite $16 billion being authorized for new prisons to be built and leading the wave of privatized prisons to fill the gap. Of course, 90% of all new inmates from this period on were black and Hispanic. And we covered a lot of the fallout from the 94 crime bill in our mass incarceration episode, and thanks to intellectuals like Michelle Alexander, we have a clear understanding of just how devastating Clinton's policies have been in black communities. What's astounding, all these years later, and with clear evidence to show how horrific this era was, Bill Clinton was still on the defensive during his wife's campaign in 2016. I talked to a lot of African-American groups. They thought Black Lives Matter. They said, take this bill because our kids are being shot in the street by gangs. We have 13-year-old kids planning their own funerals. She doesn't want to hear any of that. You know what else she doesn't want to hear? Because of that bill, we had a 25-year low in crime, a 33-year-low in the murder rate, year low rate, murder rate. And listen to this. Because of that and the background check law, we had a 46-year low in the deaths of people by gun violence. And who you think those lives were that mattered? Whose lives were saved that mattered? You know, I um, would often be told, well, you know, during the 1990s, um, there were so many black people who wanted Get Tough. They were also calling for harsh mandatory minimum sentences or more police. And so you cannot blame the Clintons for getting on the Get Tough bandwagon because there were so many black activists and people in those communities who wanted, um, you know, more police and, and more prisons. And, you know, if the Clinton administration and if the Democratic Party as a whole had only gotten on board with the Get Tough movement while also um, investing heavily in our schools. If they had also invested in child welfare and economic investment in our neighborhoods and job training programs for those who had been uh, left behind as a result of deindustrialization, if any of that had actually happened along with the get tough, lock them up and throw away the key um, mentality, then maybe, maybe I might have understood. But no, what we saw um, during the Clinton era was police and prisons, um, investment by tens of millions of dollars flowing into police and prisons while uh, the Clinton administration ended welfare as we know it dismantled aid to families with dependent children, um, slashing funding for public housing while, you know, putting billions into building new prisons. Um, and so it was the Democratic Party's willingness to embrace wholeheartedly the right-wing agenda on rice, crime, taxes, and the end of big government um, that I found deeply troubling. Chapter 8. It's the economy, asshole. The era of big government is over. One of the things about the Republican Party that frustrated the likes of Milton Friedman was the growth of the federal budget, especially with respect to the military. Big government was supposed to be a Democrat thing. So as Clinton assumed the presidency, it was considered a huge departure to speak about reducing the size of government, eliminating federal jobs, cutting welfare programs and the like. This stance sparked a competitive wave among Republicans like Dick Armey, who counted a letter from Milton Friedman as one of his most prized possessions and the summer of 1969 at the University of Chicago as the best summer of his life. Army was instrumental in creating two contracts, one internal, one external. The internal contract was Grover Norquist's tax pledge. God, I hate that fucking guy. Every incoming Republican into Congress was asked to sign a pledge that they would vote against any new tax increases. 
Now, the other was Newt Gingrich's Contract with America that contained a number of pledges to the nation, including a promise to balance the budget. Again, a race to see who could cut more and be the better free market neoliberal. Here's historian Howard Zinn, quote, Reduction of the annual deficit in order to achieve a balanced budget became an obsession of the Clinton administration. But since Clinton didn't want to raise taxes on the wealthy or to cut funds for the military, the only alternative was to sacrifice the poor, the children, the aged, to spend less for health care, for food stamps, for education, for single mothers. Two examples of this appeared early in Clinton's second administration in the spring of 1997. From the New York Times, a major element of President Clinton's education plan, a proposal to spend $5 billion to repair the nation's crumbling schools, was among the items quietly killed in last week's agreement to balance the federal budget. And from the Boston Globe, after White House intervention, remember that, White House intervention, the Senate yesterday rejected a proposal to extend health insurance to the nation's 10.5 million uninsured children. Seven lawmakers switched their votes after senior White House officials called and said the amendment would imperil the delicate budget agreement. End fucking quote. It was essential to the Clinton administration to have early wins and payoffs to shrinking the size of government and eliminating the deficits. See, payoffs would only be measured heretofore in terms of economic growth. The idea that America was booming was a central theme of the Clinton narrative. And if one judged by Wall Street and corporate America metrics, there was a good deal of truth to this sentiment. Our economy is the healthiest it has been in three decades. We have the lowest combined rates of unemployment and inflation in 27 years. We have completed, created nearly 8 million new jobs, over a million of them in basic industries like construction and automobiles. America is selling more cars than Japan for the first time since the 1970s. And for three years in a row, we have had a record number of new businesses started in our country. It all depends on one's definition of success. Howard Zinn, for one, took a different view. Quote, It was possible to say that the U.S. economy was healthy, but only if you considered the richest part of the population. Meanwhile, 40 million people were without health insurance, the number having risen by 33% in the 90s. And infants died of sickness and malnutrition at a rate higher than that of any other industrialized country. There seemed to be unlimited funds for the military, but people who performed vital human services in health and education had to struggle to barely survive, end quote. So back to our friend Bernard Harcourt, the guy that you know I love, the author of Illusion of Free Markets, right? Let's let his ideas really ring true here. The neoliberal mentality is that the government is only effective in the punitive arena. So it tracks that military spending would increase while the Clinton administration kept a tight grip on the budget. These were true believers in Milton Friedman's work. Clearing a way for the free market will allow private enterprise to step into social welfare and healthcare and perform services driven by the invisible hand and the spirit of competition, right? A free market provides for all through magic. The New Democrats were now in charge and it was time to bring their concepts to life through legislation. Tasked with turning campaign promises into policy were DLC leaders like the Roberts, Reuben and Reich, Andrew Cuomo as the assistant secretary of HUD. Black and white and brown and Asian and short. Domestic policy chair Carol Rasco, Gene Sperling of the Economic Development Council, and others. One of the first domestic initiatives they wanted to revitalize and improve was the concept of enterprise zones that surfaced under the prior administration, but was shot down by Bush because it was seen as, you know, beneficial to black people in cities. So fuck them. Am I right? The Clinton team revised the plan to identify poor and dangerous urban areas and target them with a suite of economic development policy measures. This is where I have to take a step back and really try to be fair. There were committed policy wonks building these plans and looking to make real change. I've criticized Clinton personally for his false opportunism at the expense of the black community, but the same cannot be said about the early members of his administration. 
They were really true believers and would-be reformers who had it all mapped out on paper. The Clinton version of the DOA Enterprise Zones was reskinned as Empowerment Zones, and the administration went full force to sell it to America through a competitive bidding process. Municipalities were charged with designing the best program to fit their needs with the promise that the federal government would supply funding, tax breaks, incentives, and fulfill requests specific to these designated areas. Empowerment zones and enterprise communities represent perhaps the most vivid example of President Clinton's new approach to rebuilding neighborhoods, creating jobs, and lifting lives. Some officials advocated for a suite of strictly fiscal incentives. Others, like Andrew Cuomo, believe it or not, believed that, quote, breaks had to be paid with increased social services like job training, education, nutrition, daycare, and affordable housing rights, Geismer. These services would be delivered in a block grant approach that echoed the urban policies of the administrations of Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, end quote. So the idea of bringing local groups together to tailor bids in a competitive process seemed like a great idea, and there was some merit to it. One-size-fits-all programs had failed miserably during the urban renewal years of the 70s. But the competitive aspect and the two-tiered proposed system with only get this, 10 full awards and then hundreds of bids that would be acknowledged as sort of honorable mentions meant that it was destined to be Byzantine, complicated, and dependent upon the private sector to weigh in heavily as partners. See, the New Democrats obviously saw this as a win because private sector involvement alleviated budgetary demands from the feds. Ultimately, the Empowerment Zone program passed muster. Unfortunately, it was missing the important social trimmings that would have let municipalities feast on the rewards. To pass the budget as a whole, the Clinton administration marginally increased taxes on corporations, but cut a slew of poverty programs from Head Start to food stamps. Also missing from the campaign promise days was funding for critical infrastructure. The result was a mostly fiscal-oriented development package that relied heavily on the involvement of the private sector and was missing any semblance of physical and social infrastructure needs that would support the communities the Empowerment Zone businesses were designed to serve. Despite the well-publicized fact from the Rodney King incident that shone a light on Los Angeles, the city was not among the winning bids. New York City, Chicago, Baltimore, Philly, Atlanta, Detroit, Kansas City, the Mississippi Delta, and the Kentucky Highlands were chosen. L.A. would later be awarded a strictly monetary consolation prize. Missing from the equation, as Clinton well knew from his experience promoting Shore Bank, was the ability for businesses within empowerment zones to access credit. Again, Geismer, quote, The programs collectively treated poverty and racial discrimination as a market failure. Their main architects saw a lack of access to capital and credit, not the evisceration of the social safety net, rising incarceration, and historical patterns of segregation, as the primary problem poor communities of color faced, end quote. So the committee appended a proposal a year later called the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, or the CDFI. Perhaps the biggest champion behind the scenes was Robert Rubin, who believed in market solutions as much as any neoliberal Milton Friedman acolyte who ever existed. The fund would directly invest tens of millions of dollars, then leverage additional supporting funds from private financial institutions that had to be sold on the proposition that these credit packages would be profitable. The media loved it. They loved everything about it. And to a degree, even Republicans were enthusiastic about the market-oriented approach of the combined programs. And some areas did make the most out of it, such as Harlem, as Representative Charlie Rangel was probably the most vocal advocate for empowerment zones and thus the most prepared to leverage all that it was worth. But in the end, all of the sweat, the proposals, the white papers, lobbying efforts, budget machinations amounted to very little in return. Like Shore Bank had done in Chicago, then in Arkansas, Clinton trotted out singular entrepreneurial success stories as evidence that the program worked. All you needed was credit, a business plan, and determination. Or, you know, bootstraps. Final word to Geismer. Quote, Despite the effusive language that Clinton used to describe institutions like Shore Bank and initiatives like the CRA and Empowerment Zones, 
these programs all remain very small in comparison to the very large problems of concentrated poverty and racial segregation that they were intended to address. End quote. And we know what that implies on fuckers. It's the worst acronym ever made up And we realize now it was a stupid thing to do It stands for pistol in the ocean to warm it up It's time for Pito Tweet Chapter 9. Border Wars Now, let's review some familiar territory. It was actually in our immigration episode that I promised to unpack the Clinton years, so let's recap what we learned in that episode. You'll recall that it was the Clinton-era policies that marked a seminal shift in our treatment of immigrants in this country. Clinton's immigration reform measures demonized foreign-born immigrants and criminalized their status in a way that even Republicans had never even dreamed of doing. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. The crime bill had set the table with severely punitive measures that would rip apart families and incarcerate waves of black and brown youth for decades. So the mechanisms were in place to punish immigrants as well. But first, the administration had to criminalize their very existence. Clinton accomplished this with two separate bills. Remember, the first was called Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act in response to the Oklahoma City bombings. Which we pointed out at the time was interesting pass a terrorism law to go after immigrants because of a white guy who blew up a building and murdered people. Right. And the other was the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. Apologies, but I'm going to read again from a Cornell University report on the bill to describe it. Quote, the act was designed to improve border control by imposing criminal penalties for racketeering, alien smuggling, and the use or creation of fraudulent immigration-related documents and increasing interior enforcement by agencies charged with monitoring visa applications and visa abusers. The act also allows for the deportation of undocumented immigrants who commit a misdemeanor or a felony. The act mandates that immigrants who are unlawfully present in the United States for 180 days, but under 365 days, must remain outside of the United States for three years unless pardoned. If they remain in the United States for 365 days or more, they must stay outside of the United States for 10 years unless they obtain a waiver. However, if they return to the U.S. without the pardon, they must wait 10 years until they can even apply for the waiver, end quote. Okay, so, sounds kind of rational, right? But again, we have to think about how people actually live, how they behave, how they work and travel. We covered the concept of net migration, which is the number of people who immigrate versus emigrate, come in versus leave. What this bill did was effectively eliminate the incentive to leave. It was extremely common for immigrant labor to move back and forth across the border with the harvests and the seasons. But this law created a trap. Leaving meant you might never be able to return. So returning before the artificial time frame became illegal. So did staying longer than a work visa. An entire swath of the labor pool was caught in Clinton's spiderweb by design. Damned if they stayed, damned if they left. That's why I say that Clinton criminalized their existence. Then he passed measures that applied the harshest elements of the criminal justice system as enforcement tools. 
And for Mexican workers, it was even more precarious because Reagan's drug policy contributed to the buildup of massive and dangerous cartels right across the border. NAFTA solidified wage slavery in Mexico as well on the heels of the Mexican debt crisis in the 1980s, also the result of our punitive global banking policies. So, we helped foster a lawless culture driven by drug lords, robbed Mexico's treasury, locked down the border, allowed American companies to set up shop in Mexico and plunder low-wage workers, and criminalized their existence in the United States when they tried to flee. So in terms of NAFTA, I'll give a quick final word to one of the more curious figures of this era, business person and Clinton opponent for the presidency, Ross Perot, debating Vice President Al Gore on Larry King Live and predicting the outcome of NAFTA. Here is the NAFTA game by U.S. manufacturing companies cheap right after NAFTA passes that are labor intensive, that make good products, that have marginal profits. Close the factories in the U.S., move the factories to Mexico, take advantage of the cheap labor, run your profits through the roof, sell the company's stock at a profit, go get another one. Chapter 10. Closing the Book on Clinton Did Bill Clinton have the best of intentions throughout his career? A better question would be, does it matter? Because the answer is no. Nor do I think he could reconcile his intentions with his actions. You see, the same pathology that allowed him to stare into the camera and say that he did not have sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky is the same pathology that allowed him to look into the eyes of black America and say that he was there to help. By the end of his administration, Clinton seemed unmoved by the disturbing trends of mass incarceration, spiking rates of extreme poverty and upheaval in the black community due to housing and welfare reform. The rich were getting richer, inflation was under control, and Wall Street was kicking ass. And he was going to end his term with a budget surplus, it was the ultimate neoliberal formula and the definition of neoliberal success. But Benjamin Applebaum offers a different perspective on these so-called achievements in his book, The Economist's Hour. Quote, The government's austerity during the Clinton years is often listed among the reasons the economy boomed, because it helped to hold down interest rates. But the government's greater contribution to economic growth in the 1990s was its spending in earlier decades on education research, and infrastructure. Americans who entered their prime working years in the 1990s were far more likely to have college degrees than adults in the rest of the developed world. The rise of Silicon Valley was a triumph of government-sponsored research, government investment in infrastructure, and the government's development of human capital. The austerity of the Clinton years, by contrast, meant the government was reducing its investment in future growth. End quote. Despite the total failure of his market-based and microfinance poverty initiatives to lift up the poorest among us with the help of public-private partnerships, Bill Clinton doubled down at the end of his term. Job training opportunities are being provided by MetLife, Microsoft, Gateway, Owens Corning, the North American Steel Framing Alliance, Worthington Industries, and Amity Incorporated. But government must play a role in providing incentives for these companies. President Clinton understands government's role and has proposed legislation to create APIC, America's private investment corporation, providing new markets tax credits and funding to do major economic investment in inner cities. And despite the overwhelming evidence that mass incarceration was literally killing black communities, particularly in the case of low-level drug offenses, Clinton couldn't even muster the courage with the ultimate weapon a president possesses. Here's Robinson. Quote, In the final days of his presidency, Clinton indicated he was considering offering a broad clemency or amnesty for nonviolent drug offenders who had served long prison terms. But when the list of 140 pardons and commutations was announced during the final few days of the presidency, only a couple of dozen were drug offenders. Internal records show that Clinton considered and rejected a proposal to free nearly 500 prisoners, end quote. There is still so much that we didn't cover about the Clinton years. 
how he used the cover of wars in Iraq, Bosnia, and Somalia to distract from his sex scandals, how he used his pardoning power for white-collar criminal friends, how he destroyed Haiti and exploited African nations in crisis, how he championed the cause of charter schools and undercut teachers' unions, deregulated the telecommunications industry, leading to a wave of consolidation and mega-mergers and resulting in the near-total control of the media by a handful of large corporations. How he put the future of healthcare reform into the hands of his wife and a working group that produced a report so confusing, even Democrats didn't understand how to support it. As a result, there was no healthcare reform. So when Clinton purged millions of Americans from the welfare rolls, millions subsequently lost their medical coverage. Were there bright spots? Sure. Clinton successfully passed the assault weapons ban, even though it's now expired. His administration broke up Microsoft in one of the last successful attempts to hold a mega corporation accountable in the United States. Oh, and upper middle class white suburbanites thrived. But on the whole, inequality worsened in the 1990s more than any other decade in American history. We have to see the world as it is. Reconcile hard truths about our past if we're to move boldly into the future. The Clinton years were an unmitigated disaster in terms of social and economic justice. Insofar as Clinton's policies were also the neoliberal dream scenario, it provides clear evidence of the failure of the free market Chicago school doctrine. We cannot allow establishment Democrats to lionize the Clinton era just because the stock market was cooking and white people did rather well. This type of nostalgia is dangerous, and it's why progressives cringe at the very thought of claiming these years as an example of democratic prowess and competency. It's time to stop defending the least worst options on the table. The only enduring policies throughout our brief history that work are progressive. And it's time to close the door on the Clinton era for good. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, unfuckers. I'm here alone in the studio. Not really alone. I actually have one of my best friends in the studio to make sure that I didn't uh, trip anything up, so... He helped me uh, along the process, so to him I say thank you, and you shall also remain unnamed, my friend, but again, thank you. What can I say except you're welcome? 99 is actually uh, on a little bit of a trip, catching a concert, getting a little bit of R&R and some fun time, which I am about to do, as you know, on vacation, so uh, excited for that. In terms of this Clinton series, just a couple of thoughts, and thoughts related to our future. We have the midterms coming up, and some people have written in, as we talked about in our show notes last week, that it's we have to stop criticizing Joe Biden, or else we're going to jeopardize the midterms. So let me just say this again, as it was in the Clinton era, Joe Biden is not running during the midterms. Don't worry about criticism of Joe fucking Biden. Joe Biden is a, is a creature of the system that produced Bill Clinton. Joe Biden is one of those new Democrats. He created the crime bill. It's all fucking his. Bill Clinton just picked it up, polished it off, and made it meaner. But that's Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden doesn't give a fuck about you. He doesn't even feel your pain, right? Joe Biden is just in power because he thought he was due, just like Hillary Clinton thought that she was due. None of them are due. The only thing that matters is that we have a progressive vision and that we overwhelm the Democratic Party. We have to, during the midterms, lay the groundwork for progressives to swallow the party whole so that we can set ourselves up the next time. 
for the right type of progressive candidate to surface, rise to the top, and be embraced by the whole of the 60 to 70% of this country that really actually believes in progressive initiatives, even if they don't know to call it that. We can't look back at these Clinton years as the salad days. It's dangerous. We have to move away from that. If nothing else, I hope that this series really illustrated the fact that we just don't understand our history or we are willing to accept and gobble up the bullshit narrative of the people who are defending the thing that they created. All of the media that we consume today was created during that era of mega consolidations. And they're selling us a bill of goods. And they're selling it in a bifurcated approach where you've got the conservative media selling us a false narrative of what happened because they won't own up to the awful punitive measures that destroyed this country. And then the other side of the of the establishment, the more, quote, liberal side, even though it's not that, selling us that those were the good old days. Bill Clinton is a motherfucker. He is a very bad person. And I cringe whenever I see him being held out there as an example of what was right in America, that we gave him a pass, or at least I guess focused on all of his personal issues that so many presidents have had before him, by the way. And I think it comes along with sort of that pathological narcissism that makes you think that you can be the president of the United States. But those personal foibles, those flaws, were more indicative of his character than I think we even realized. It was a dangerous time in America, and it shifted us from a course that you heard, you heard it yourself, in Jesse Jackson's words, spoken at that 88 convention, the inflection point where we had to make a hard choice on the left. Were we going to steer out of our roots and the things that made this country successful and supported poor people and delivered the civil rights movement and the New Deal and the Great Society? and underpinnings of an economy to make sure that people didn't fall through the cracks? Were we going to steer into that or away from it? And in that moment, when you heard his words, hopefully you can still feel the, the twinge of regret, the pang in your stomach that, oh my God, that was possible? That he actually marshaled more support than some of the people that you thought could ultimately prevail and become the president of the United States at the time and, and since then, that he was a giant on the international stage as well. These moments were possible, just like Bernie Sanders was possible before the establishment threw him out of the game. Just like, I don't know who's next, but we have a slate and a slew of progressive public officials and those we don't yet know about coming to the forefront that are learning these lessons, that are thinking about these issues critically, that are taking this journey along with all of the unfuckers around the globe. They're on this journey with us and they understand. So our job is to spread this knowledge, not walk away from it. Our job is not to apologize for Joe Biden and establishment Democrats because they're the least worst option and oh my God, we might get a Trump or a DeSantis. That's walking with fear. And it's walking away from real hard truths. So let's embrace it. Let's walk into it. Let's walk into it together. I hope you enjoyed this series as much as I enjoyed putting it together. I learned a, a shit ton from these books that I'm about to, to list off. A lot of clips that I watched and, and a lot of documentaries that I wound up in, just sort of ingesting from the period. And I'm amazed at how, how much I was sleepwalking through the period and maybe purposely continuing to sleepwalk through that period well after it was over. But sleepwalk no more. Because we can see it clearly for what it was. So thank you to the authors of the incredible books that I consumed to put this together. I hope you go to our bookshop to order them. Take a look at them for yourselves. We've got Lily Geismer's Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. Nathan J. Robinson's Super Predator, Bill Clinton's Use and Abuse of Black America. Of course, my man, Bernard Harcourt, The Illusion of Free Markets. Benjamin Applebaum, The Economist's Hour. Matt Taibbi, Griftopia, 
Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States, maybe one of the most important books that was ever produced. And another of, for me at least, in my top three most important books that I've ever read, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Insert really humorous and witty Manny Faces thing here because he's on the road and actually is doing this before he leaves so he can't know what you're going to say to put in something later. Our show was lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Go to TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Bears Boy and distributed by Blue Jays. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Lots of activity over on the Twitters, by the way. And you can join the Facebook group set up by Bob Knutson, where there's hundreds of unfuckers joining and having pretty, pretty awesome conversations at unfuckers at all. So connect with us over on Facebook and join that group if you can. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. We spoke in show notes about how we literally have, I think, about 100 books from the work that we've done together. And maybe, I think it's 50 or 60 that are recommendations from unfuckers. So we continue to load that thing up. It's looking pretty great. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Now remember, you can get to any of these links through our website at UNFTR.com. We talked a lot about our website and our accessibility efforts in show notes last week. So I do encourage you to go check out 99's work there. It is uh, pretty staggering. And I will say, even though I'm not one to just sit here and pat ourselves on the back, that I do believe that we have one of the greatest podcast websites, period, end of story. So there. And lastly, read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. Remember, they are always, always going to be free. Now, on fuckers, in the coming weeks, we've got one more episode before I head on vacation. I've got kind of a potpourri that I can choose from. I'm not sure what it's going to be because Clinton has sucked the life and energy out of me. So I don't know which one's next, but you'll have a fresh episode next week. After that, we have... We have some surprises planned. I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but we are going to keep the feed active. Right now, we have four episodes planned that are going to drop while I'm on vacation. And one, two, two of them are from very dear friends of the show that are coming on board to help us out. And another, well, that's all I can tell you for right now. So exciting stuff. Look out for that. And we'll see you next week. Thank you always for your support. We appreciate you.